Good morning, I'm Sam, and um, I saw that some Christian brothers from Uganda came in um, uh, today. Uh, our, we had the opportunity last night, my wife and I, Kayla and I, um, our church uh, supports Pilgrim, Pilgrim Africa. It's a ministry that, at this point, the vision for them is to really uh, attack malaria uh, in Uganda, and so we had the opportunity to go there last night and, and gather with uh, a large group of, of people that's grown over the years um, and listen to uh, some of the, the ministers and politicians from Uganda, and it was a pretty awesome experience. So uh, we have the a blessing of having um, some of our brothers here to, uh, to be with us, and, uh, and Mark and May Fulmer um, are two people that if you want more information about that, uh, you can talk with them. So uh, they'd be happy to share that with you. Um, good morning. Uh, normally, well, we're in Judges, but um, I, there's a study guide that Looks like we ran out of, and I wanted to give a little bit of caveat to it. Uh, I've been kind of bouncing around a little bit uh, different than how it was structured. So we are in Judges, and uh, for the first time, there's a section of Scripture, the first seven verses of chapter 12, that I'm actually not going to preach. It is the very tail end of the story of Jephthah. Uh, I will blog on it at roadpastor.org so you can see what I would have preached. But um, because of the practicalities of trying to fit the sermon schedule in before Christmas and the uh, tendency for me to go, oh, I have to stop here and preach this, um, trying to keep us moving through this. So we are in Judges 13 uh, today with the story of Samson. And this week I was reminded um, very um, soberly um, that there are people that we, uh, in our church, that we assume a lot about. And what I mean is, um, I tend to assume that we have a lot more biblical knowledge or even experience than I think um, many of us do. And so this week, for example, on Tuesday, a fantastic young woman named Stacy, the two kids, came into our church. She just left the Mormon church after a lifetime of it, resigned her membership, and came in uh, and just happened to be the day that we were teaching the doctrine class, so we got to um, teach the Trinity to her. But all that to say, um, we also had a couple others that I was speaking with, and it was the first week that they had um, either had a Bible or some people that had been going here for several months and they didn't even know how to read the Bible, how to use it. And so I was like, you know what? Um, I think it's important for all of us to understand as I preach and uh, as we teach that we are, there's a large story um, that is encompassing all of the Bible. And we need to be reminded of that sometimes because when you walk in or, or people walk into our church and they go, Book of Judges. What are you doing at Judges? You know, they're walking in and maybe expecting like the five ways to be a better Christian or something simplistic and silly like that. And we're in Judges, they kind of get confused because they don't have a full context. So you'll see that sometimes in my sermons I try to give a little more context to what's going on because the book of Judges is a story within a story. It's not the story itself. It is just a chapter in the larger story of the one true living God that is on mission to rescue His people from sin, from evil, ultimately from their darkened hearts that were caused by rebellion. And so the story of God from Genesis to Revelation, you have the Old Testament that basically speaks of um, waiting for Jesus to come. The New Testament is after He come, and we're waiting for Him to come a second time. And so the Old Testament is this kind of God on mission, raising up people, men and women, and leaders, and prophets, and priests, and eventually kings that lead God's people, that really save God's people for a time, all pointing towards or waiting for the true Savior ultimately come. Now, Judges, in the larger story, is that part of the story, that chapter in the larger story of God, where people, God's people, are pretty leaderless. They have no leader, um, they're a little lost, and so they decide to make decisions, basically, doing what is right in their own eyes. Now, what they think is right is usually wrong, and so they end up, God ends up raising up judges or deliverers or these these men to save them ultimately from their sin and from the rebellion and from being, if you will, lost. And all of these guys, these individuals, and some are women, most of them are men, they are raised up and all of them are men or women that are broken. They all are flawed. They all have their problems. They all have their own failures. But they all are pointing towards the one deliverer that is perfect. The one Savior that will deal with sin completely and comprehensively once and for all. 
That's the larger story. And so as we're in Judges chapter 13, we're going to see four chapters uh, dedicated to this deliverer sent by God named Samson. Maybe you've heard of him. Now, Samson is the 12th of 12 judges, and one for each tribe of Israel. And many will argue that Samuel is the 13th judge, so we have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, which actually happens in between Judges, then 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel is the kind of book that leads us to King Saul, when the king finally comes, because Judges ends with there's no king in Israel. Well, Samuel, historically, and Samson are probably born about the same time. And if you look at their birth stories, they're very similar in how they come about, or how they are brought into this world. And so, it's likely, though, as we look at all the other judges, that before we even jumped into this book, it's probably a good bet that you couldn't have named very many of them. It's not as if um, guys like Shamgar are really popular, or Tola, or even Jephthah, or Ibzon, or men and women, or say women like Delilah or Jael. Um, But without doubt, I'm guessing that everyone has heard of Samson has heard some story or some version of the tale of Samson, whether you're a believer or not. Even culturally, we know about Samson. And most of the versions out there are pretty unbiblical. Now, the name Samson, and I don't know, like even for my children, but even for us, it conjures up this kind of Herculean hero, right? This, this Jewish superman who goes around ripping apart lions with his bare hands and, and fighting armies with the jawbones of animals and always getting the girl. Like, that's Samson. And he is pictured as, and the picture is scripture, but even more so in culture, as this buff, suave, good-looking, um, very hairy stud. Okay? That's Samson. And so, take that picture and you go, okay, the problem is, the real story of Samson, or the biblical story of Samson, that he is a very tragic hero. He is a man who uh, abuses tremendous gifts that God blesses him with. And he is, without question, a gifted leader. He was a mighty warrior. He was a very charismatic figure that, that everyone was drawn to. But he is deeply broken. Deeply, deeply broken. And yet, which is the story of Judges, which is the story of the Bible, in Samson's story, we see that God is bigger than his sin. And God still accomplishes his mission even through the sin of Samson. And that should give us some comfort as we make our own mistakes, as we screw up and have screwed up, to know that our sin... Our brokenness, our failures cannot thwart the mission of God. It cannot stop the mission of God. It cannot even bump the mission of God. He accomplishes it by His grace and His power. Now over the next four weeks, we're going to um, begin to see this guy, and you're going to see some things that should remind you maybe of yourself a little bit. You have a guy that in, for all intents and purposes rebels against God's calling what he was called and commanded to do. We have a guy who pursued his sin and his own glory. And we have a guy who, um, quite frankly, has a very perverted view of masculinity. And it's a view of masculinity that, quite frankly, has infected our culture very powerfully. And you think of the kind of like, be a man type of guy, it looks a lot like Samson. But it doesn't talk about the tragicness of that and what it leads to. And many Christians and many churches have even grabbed onto that, I think, to their shame, where they begin to see or they begin to adopt a view of masculinity that, quite frankly, is um, sinful. So, though we're going to see how God saves through this wonderfully dark hero, and that's what we'll call him, this wonderfully dark hero, my greatest desire is to, quite frankly, see the uh, little bit of Samson in all of us that needs saving. That's who we are in the story. Like If you read most of the stories of the Bible, the person that's most like messed up, that's usually you, right? We always want to like 
be Jesus in the story or be like the good Samaritan in the story. Like, no, that's not us, right? We're always the messed up one. So Samson is in us uh, in a very real way. And so we ended Judges 12, um, well, actually it was Judges 11, with the story of Jephthah. This was last week. And he ended with, uh, basically, as a very unfaithful man, making a very unrighteous vow that destroyed his family. And now the next story, the big story, is Samson. And it begins in chapter 13 with a faithful God who is making a very faithful vow to save his people. Okay? So, Judges 13, I'm going to read the whole chapter. If you follow along, uh, I will try to read it somewhat slow, but you know I'm kind of fast. Verse 1 says this. Right? The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And there was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. His wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink. Eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be called a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Well, then the woman came and told her husband, well, a man came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. To which Manoah's like, fantastic, right? I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, behold, he shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be called Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Well, then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you have sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her, so the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah rose, and he went after his wife, and he came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Manoah said, Now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life, and, and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the wine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. And so Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you, prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Well, what is your name so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. And now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. And the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, and then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted the burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or announced to us such things as these. Duh. Right? That's in my version. You know she's thinking it. And the woman bore a son and called his name Sanson, and the young man grew. The Lord blessed him. The Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Manahena, Dan, between Zorah, let me just pray. Father God, would you send your spirit to convict or comfort us, whatever you see fit, whatever we need. Move me out of the way and speak the words that you wish to speak to your glory and our joy. Amen. So, Samson. Now, for the last six chapters, so Judges 6 to now Judges 13, when upwards of probably about 200 years of time, God has been silent. He has said nothing, and lots of things have happened. The last time God is recorded as speaking through the angel of the Lord is in Judges chapter 6, when the angel came and spoke to Gideon. Now, over that time, 
Israel has followed a pretty regular pattern that might be quite familiar to our own lives. And that is, they sin, God judges, they cry, and God saves. They sin, God judges, they cry, God saves. And so the last judge, Abdon, it's right at the end of chapter 12, he reigned for eight years, and upon his death, Israel returned to do what they thought was right in their own eyes, which I said is usually quite wrong. Namely, what they do is God had made promise to them, and they had obligations to keep their end of the bargain, if you will, the covenant, specifically said, do not worship false gods. They worship all of them. Do not make agreements or covenants with God's enemies. They become best friends with them. And they said, do not marry foreign women. And they decide to do that. Even Samson does that. So they break all the covenant. They are in sin. And God judges them by raising up a nation. In this case, it's the Philistines. And these are the guys, the enemy that the old farmer Shamgar, if you remember that guy who had the ox goad, and he wiped out 600 Philistines. So he's kept them at bay, and now they are in full uh, oppression mode. So every time, though, that God has raised up an oppressor, Israel has cried. Israel has felt oppressed, and in their distress, they have cried. It's never been a cry of repentance. It's always been a cry of, get us out of this pain. But this time, even though the oppression is the greatest one in Judges, 40 years of oppression, 40 years of distress, 40 years of enslavement and servitude, they don't cry. I believe Israel has become quite comfortable in their enslavement. More than just used to it. They have come, I think, to accept their oppression and even their idolatry as the new normal. It's the way things are, perhaps even the way things should be. They don't cry because their sin no longer registers. It no longer bothers them. They are content living in and like and even for the world around them. And I couldn't help but get away from this idea of we need to fear being that comfortable with our sin. Where it no longer bothers us. John Owen, Puritan, famously said that be killing sin or it will be killing you. And one of the most effective ways for the enemy to kill us is to just inoculate us to the ugliness of sin. To get us to a place where we go, you know what, it's not that bad. It's, it's not that big a deal. We become comfortable with the idea of like, well, you know, I'm pretty devoted. I'm better than, right? Better than that guy. Better than that person. Or not as bad as that person. I mean, after all, I'm not as idolatrous and lawless and rebellious as Jephthah we saw last week. I mean, that's unfaithful. I'm not that. I mean, I might not be fully devoted. I might not be you know, right in line with all that God tells me to do, but I'm not throwing my children up on the altar and burnt sacrifices. We have acceptable idols. We have acceptable idols representing acceptable sins, like a little bit of greed, a little bit of lust, just a little unloving, a little coveting here and there, no big deal. So I, I challenge all of us, okay, we're a family, right? I mean, challenge all of you as a family. How comfortable are you with sin? What's your devotion to the Lord look like? And I'm not saying names. I'm not even to give numbers or anything like that, but just ask yourself some really hard questions. Because this is not about, in your mind, because your legal defense team rushes to your head, right? You go, okay. I'm going to prove I'm acceptable by all the things I've done, all the things I haven't done. You start making your list. I remember 10 years ago, I went on that mission trip, and that, I mean, that was a lot of points with God. Um, and, man, I gave a lot of money to the church uh, this, this year, so, man, I've got to get points there, right? You start making those lists, okay, put all those outside. 
talking about in the darkness of, of you know, the quietness and the desolation of your aloneness with God. Consider your devotion and ask yourself this question. How would your life look different if Jesus ceased to be your Lord right now? How would your life look different if he ceased to be your Lord right now? Would it look different? And you ask yourself maybe some more specific questions that we don't like to ask ourselves, so I'll be the bad guy. How do you spend your money? What are the biggest bills in in your life? And I, again, I ask myself these same questions when I start seeing how big cell phone bills are, how much money I spend on coffee. I mean, just ask yourself. When you start going, what am I really devoted to? What about how you spend your time? That's a big one for a lot of people. I mean, does Facebook get five hours of your day and God gets five minutes on average? And I'm not suggesting God needs to get eight hours in one minute because that gives him a third, that's, you know, or 10% of your day. I'm just asking the question, what does it tell about someone's devotion, what they're devoted to, when five hours goes to something like Facebook and five minutes goes to spending time with the Lord? What about serving your church? Why would you talk about that? Well, because the Bible says when you become a Christian, you actually become part of a body. It means you're a body part. And what excuses have you used for being a lame one? Right? So the body's dragging your, you around like this. I mean, think about it. How, uh, how do you spend your energy? Oh, that's, that's kind of weird. Like, well, think about this. How many of us give, or how much energy do you give to planning and saving and organizing for that vacation or that big project or that thing you want to do compared to how much energy do you spend intentionally planning and organizing your service to God somewhere? Hard questions. And you start going, wow. Wow. I really need to consider my devotion. And am I just comfortable with certain things that actually are sinful? I'm just not willing to call them sinful because I'm not, they're not altar-burning things. If your desires and your plans and your checkbook and your time and all that you have suddenly cease to be governed by the Lordship of Jesus Christ that you now claim, would anything change? And perhaps some of us have become really comfortable with some of these acceptable sins and comfortable with confessing the name of Jesus but living like the world around us so that you really look no different from anyone in your neighborhood, where you work, or in your family. But here's the amazing thing about God. Although he should just turn tail and go, done with you. By grace... This is the setting in which God decides to break the silence for Israel. Our unfaithfulness is always the beginning of God's story. It is, in fact, maybe where God works best and maybe even exclusively. Unfaithfulness is all he has to work with. So he enters into a situation, we see this in the birth of Samson, he enters into a situation that only he can resolve. Only he can change. Like, The kind of devotion that God expects and requires is only possible through a miracle of God's Spirit. It should, quite frankly, help us to be a little more compassionate when that person's not showing up to the prayer meeting you think they should. Not saying they should, but it's funny how we get a a devotion somewhere in our lives, a commitment somewhere in our lives, and we begin to judge everyone else who doesn't. The fact is, God, for whatever reason, decided to change your heart on one of those things. We should be much more gracious to others where God has not changed. Because fact is, when someone turns away from their selfishness to a selfless life devoted to God, that is an act of God alone. But up to this point, God has raised up men, calling them out of wine presses into battlefields at times. But instead of raising up a living deliverer, He decides to grow one from scratch. Right? 
The angel of the Lord tells a barren woman who has no children, says it multiple times, like to make the point that she is going to have a son. Without God, there will be no life in this woman's womb. There is no bread growing. It is empty. Nothing. Our loving God speaks hope into situations, especially when men are plugging the ears and not listening. Our sovereign God speaks salvation when there is only oppression, when there is only enslavement. That's when He speaks. Our Creator God speaks life where there is only emptiness. He is the one that takes ashes and builds something beautiful. He's the one that says there's nothing there, and now I'm speaking life into it. And not only does the angel Lord tell her she's going to bear a son, tells her that his son's going to be devoted to the Lord, a Nazarite, which you can read in number six was part of the law to devote someone. Don't cut their hair. Keep them away from strong drink and wine. Really even grapes themselves. And he's going to have a specific mission. He is going to begin, not fully, begin to save Israel from the Philistines. And this is such... People go like, how's the Old Testament about Jesus? Not that they sound like that, but it's kind of fun to speak like that, right? (laughs) Jesus is all over. The whole Bible's about Jesus. This is a perfect example where this is clearly projecting going, there is a Savior who is coming. He's not Samson, but he's like Samson. If you read in Luke chapter 1, the birth of Samson sounds strangely like the birth of Christ. Angel comes to a young woman. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. Behold, you're going to conceive in your womb, and you're going to bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great. It's like Samson. And he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will, there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, how will this be? I'm a virgin. Not barren, but empty. And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child will be born, will be called holy, set apart, like Samson, devoted, like Samson, the Son of God. And goes further, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible for God. So the thing that I sit on and go, okay, what is your impossible right now? Where does God have to show up or change will not occur, salvation will not happen? Whether it be the fact that you're oppressed or you just don't even desire God. What is your impossible? And there's so much that could be said about God setting apart a child before they're born. This is a little sidebar. And I don't think that's necessarily the intention of the text, but I was compelled to say that it is certainly a bold declaration of the truth that God knows and has a purpose for His unborn children. And for the church or the individual Christian, to stand silent and idly by while 1.2 million unborn children are killed every year. 1.2 million. To stand idly by is to be as comfortable with sin as Israel has become. We should be weeping over that kind of death. But I think perhaps we should weep even more over our unfaithfulness and our comfort with it. We should be pleading to God for help because, quite frankly, His Spirit is the only thing. It ain't going to be legislation. His Spirit's the only thing that's going to change the heart of our culture. But the thrust of this text, the real purpose of this text, and maybe it's very much connected, is that our God Our good, great God is faithful to save. And without Him, we are lost. Men contribute absolutely nothing to their salvation but their sin. That's what we bring to the table. In barrenness, in 
hopelessness, in oppression, God brings forth a Savior. There's no human energy, no human talent, not even human desire. There is only a faithful, loving, glorious God showing grace. God always moves first. You never take a step toward God until He has taken a million steps towards you. He always moves first. And this is the thing about devotion. Whenever He moves, you move. It's the natural response. You can't help but be moved. You can't help but change. You can't help but be transformed. When God shows up, things change. But Samson, he appears strangely to be one of the few people in the book of Judges at least, the only judge perhaps that comes from a stable home with seemingly good parents. Right? God shows up. They're pretty good parents. But for those of us who, uh, in my wife, God bless her heart, she has this tendency to believe that, you know, if I just build the perfect environment for my kids, they will come out godly and wonderful and fantastic. Just go ahead and check out Samson, right? It's not to say that your kids will be faithful or unfaithful. It's to say that that's in the hands of God. And you are, as a parent, called to faithfulness. You are called to teach your children. You are called to protect them. But God is the one who will call that child from darkness into light, not you. And so we see he comes from stable parents, and man, he goes off the deep end. And he has a mother without a name, which I think theologically is probably related to Adam and Eve. Eve was named woman before the fall. After the fall, she got her name. But we'll go into that. But this woman without a name tells her husband Manoah what's happened. So she goes and tells him, like, I met this man. He was, like, angelic, and he was awesome. Right? The greatest thing a husband wants to hear. Wow, that's great, honey. And the thing about Manoah, as you watch him, he's an interesting guy. Um, she repeats everything that is said by the angel, and Manoah wants to verify it for himself, though. And so... He prays to God. He listens. you got to catch what he prays, right? She tells him, I have a son. We've got to do these things. Raise him up this way. He's going to start saving for the Philistines. Monoga's over. Okay, sure. Lord, will you send this man back so we can know how to raise this child and what his mission... Like, he was just told this. But he wants his own verification. And throughout the story, you... Quite frankly, you see Manoah, he sounds like, at best, kind of an unspiritual doofus. Okay? He's kind of a doofus. And at worst, he's, he's probably like a, you know, a, an evil pagan guy. But he's somewhere in between there, and he refuses to listen to the wisdom of his spiritually discerning wife. Now, I'm going to tell you, it sounds like a lot of marriages I know. See, men weren't chosen... To be God's leaders, God's head of the home, God's primary representative, because they're more spiritual. On the contrary, I think there's a lot of women, my wife included, who are way more spiritual discerning than me. Way more spiritually discerning than some husbands and some men. And quite frankly, fellas, it would do you well to listen to your wives more in that respect. It would have saved me a lot of trouble if I had listened to my wife a few times. A few more times, I should say. But God answers his prayer, right? And I think God emphasizes this constantly, like, women are important. Like, answers his prayer. The angel of the Lord returns to visit Manoah's wife. Right? Goes to the wife again. To the woman again. And this time, his wife runs to get Manoah, who follows her back, and he verifies, he's like, this are you the man that spoke to this woman? And he says, yes, I am. Okay, well, if our son is born, how should we raise him? What should his mission be? Uh, do what I told your wife. That's what he says. Do what I told your wife. And so you begin to see, though, Manoah's struggle coming out, okay? Maybe it's something that you can relate to, but we have a repeat of what happens to Gideon. Now Gideon, same kind of deal. Angel Lord comes, 
says, hey, you know, you're going to go fight. You're a mighty man. No, I'm not. Yeah, you are. And he offers to make him food. And then he ends up making a burnt offering. So same kind of thing. Manoah says, hey, let me make you some food. He's like, no, not going to eat. And in fact, Manoah says, I want to detain you. He's like, you can't detain me. And he says, make a burnt offering. So Manoah prepares a burnt offering. And then he asks the angel, what's your name? Seems like a really innocent question. What's your name so that when your words come true, I might honor you because I don't think I'm going to honor you until then. Alright? He didn't know it was the angel of the Lord yet. But remember that Manoah is part of a culture that is totally idolatrous. Immersed in paganism. Seven different gods, probably more, that they've all gone after. And in ancient times, knowing the name of a heavenly being was actually thought to provide like special knowledge or even special power over that being. So like, what's Manoah trying to really get here? Perhaps it sounds like Jephthah, a little bit of insurance. I don't think he actually wants to honor him. And we find out later, if you remember Gideon, the altar, the burning up goes up, and he has an altar, and God later, he freaks out the same way. He's like, oh, I'm going to die. And God says, no. Lord is peace. And he names the altar of the Lord as peace. That doesn't happen here. In fact, Manoah doesn't name the altar anything. Why? Because God is still at war. He's at war, I think, even with Israel. And what is it a war over? I think it's a war over control. Whose will is really going to be done? Whose will is really going to be done in your life? I want control of my money. I what control of my time and my stuff and my life and my mission and even my God. And I won't devote myself, just like Manoah, I won't devote myself to His command unless I know where obedience is going to lead. Unless I know and can measure how it will benefit me if I do. See that God will not be controlled, though. And the angel of the Lord refused to tell him his name. Tell him you should know it. But he says it's wonderful. And I do believe the angel of the Lord here is Jesus speaking. If you look in Isaiah 9-6, you'll see wonderful is another name for Jesus. He comes. But he basically saying, saying it's wonderful and saying he is a, a uh, worker of wonders, of miracles, of things amazing. He says, look, And saying this name very simply, Manoah, trust my word, obey my voice, know that my ways are way above your pay grade. My ways are way above your understanding. Even if I told you, you couldn't possibly fathom it or believe it. And I believe this is why many of us struggle with devotion, with sacrifice, with giving all that we are because then it's out of my control. I don't know how things are going to end. I mean, if I give a little bit more, serve a little bit more, what will happen? There's a great fear, I think, that blinds us from devotion. There's a great insecurity in not knowing how things will work out. There's great pain and sacrifice and great anxiety in possibly failing. But devotion to God is a call to leave that which is comfortable follow him into discomfort. Remember when Jesus called his disciples? Mark chapter 2. 1 and 2 actually. Peter and Andrew. Peter had a family. Peter had a great job. He's with his brother. James and John had a great job. Great family business with dad. What does Jesus show up and say? Follow me. By the way, uh, don't worry, we'll take, make sure you've got some stipends for your clothes and your food. Um, I got some miracle power, so we'll have plenty of food. Don't worry about that. We're going to travel around for about three years, and I'm going to die. Don't tell me any of that. He simply says, follow me. Follow me. Not telling him where it's going to lead. Not telling him what's going to happen. Jesus is a mysteriously wonderful and dangerous Savior. And he calls us to follow him on a mysteriously wonderful and dangerous mission. And it's a mission that requires genuine devotion 
genuine sacrifice without guarantee, and guess what? Without explanation. Time and time again, God says, follow me, and they go, what about? He says, I'll tell you about it later. Just follow. And he doesn't reveal where the path's going to end or where it's going to lead. That's devotion, and that's why I fear that many of us fear it. Because I don't know where it's going to go. How's it going to affect me financially, personally, relationally, if I follow you here, Jesus? Well, finally, as the fire goes up on the burnt offering, the angel of the Lord jumps in the fire. And they're freaking out. Both Manoah and his wife are like, ah! and they worship, start singing praise songs, right? Having seen God, Manoah is scared because the Bible says, see God, you're going to die. They're like, oh, we're going to die. Right? He's freaking out. And his discerning wife calms his fears, reminding him, don't be a doofus, right? Why would the angel come, tell us a baby's going to be born, we've got to raise him this way? Duh. And Manoah's like, yeah, you're right, okay. But the most important part of the scene is kind of lost. It's just in a little phrase there. But here's what I think for all of us. It is, it's what's going to be required to move us, to move you, to move anyone from total unfaithfulness to total faithfulness from being an enemy of God to family, from being comfortable Christians to being devoted disciples ready to die. We don't talk about that very often because we don't see it happening in our culture in America, but it is happening in this world. See, we don't need a better way of thinking. We don't need better behavior. We don't need a better life. We need an entirely new one. And the angel stepping on the altar as an offering to the Lord pictures what I'm going to call, what theologically is called the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. What the snarf is that? Substitutionary atonement, that's like a huge mouthful. I'm never dropping on anyone. It's important. It's a very big phrase that says that Jesus was not just an example of humble service and sacrifice. He wasn't just the ideal picture of love for us to follow. It is that He is your substitute. He dies in your place for your sins, taking the punishment that you deserve from a holy God and giving you the sinless life that you don't deserve. He did not just come as your example. He came to be your substitute in death and in life. That is why we celebrate communion. That is why we are baptized. That is why we live to proclaim His name. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and delivered Himself up for me. I am a new creation. Any bad? Yep, that's still parts of me in there. Any good? That's Jesus coming through. Praise God. He is your substitute. That's what I talk about. When, when God moves, when God changes your heart, you change. You move. So let's close this out in a way that makes us really all uncomfortable. Ready? If it's not making you uncomfortable, if some of the things that I say don't make you uncomfortable, um, you should, that should make you uncomfortable. But follow this through, right? When you trust in the true Samson, Jesus, the true Samson, two things come into your life. Judgment and blessing. What do you mean? Well, as predicted, Manoah's wife gives birth to a baby boy named Samson. And his name means little son, which means he's going to be bright and strong and hot. Right? He is all those things. Now, the coming of Samson, though, is, um, brings both a judgment and a blessing. And this was foretold a long time ago. What do you mean? Okay. Takes a little more digging into Samson's lineage. Right? All, this isn't Judges, is not just one story. It's part of a story. Samson's father's name Manoah. Manoah is from a tribe named Dan. 
Dan is one of the sons of Jacob, who was the grandson of Abraham, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I have 12 sons. They are the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? So Dan is where Samson comes from. Follow? Excellent. Now, Jacob had two wives. Well, actually he had four, but two wives originally. And one was named Rachel and one was named Leah. One he loved and one he didn't. But he got kind of tricked into marrying her. Rachel was the one he loved and he showed her love and he pretty much neglected Leah. But God blessed Leah with four boys. Rachel didn't like that. And in Genesis chapter 30, here's what happened. She gets angry, and she attempts to force God's hand and control her situation. It says, when Rachel saw that she, Leah, bore Jacob no children, I'm sorry, that she bore no children to Jacob, she envied her sister, who was Leah. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die! Exclamation point. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of, J- of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Like, not my fault. I can't make babies out of nothing. Then she said, Okay, well, here's my servant, Bilah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant, Bilah, as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And what does Rachel say? Then Rachel said, God has judged me. God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Dan, where Samson comes from. Now, in the eyes of Rachel, from her perspective, and she's got a pretty personal one to the situation, the birth of Dan was both a judgment and a blessing. So for over 300 years, what we've seen is Israel cry over and over again for a deliverer, for a leader, for salvation, someone to save them. And all the while they do what's right in their own eyes, and then God gives them a Savior finally. Samson, the hero they've been waiting for, and they love and hate him. You will see that they love and hate Samson. He's got heroic escapades, does all kinds of things. But they bring to him exactly what they want, exactly what they don't want. What they like and what they don't like. They love that he destroys the enemies and the Philistines and he's their hero. But then they hate him because when he does that, they take away their comfort and their security and even their idolatry. That is what devotion naturally brings. Judgment and blessing. Now, I believe this is what happens when someone becomes fully devoted to Jesus. Now, if you don't know Jesus, if Jesus is not your Savior, if Jesus is just a guy that teaches great things and you think he's great, let me tell you straight up, he is God and he is Lord. And I would plead with you to confess that you are a sinner, to see and recognize that you have lived for yourself as your own Lord and you have not done a very good job. You have rebelled against the one holy, true, loving Creator. And that is why your life is out of control. That is why you don't have meaning. That is why you don't have joy. That's why you go from Savior to Savior to Savior looking for satisfaction and are never satisfied. Believe that Jesus is your Savior. That God sent Him to die as your substitute, not to make you a better person, but to make you an entirely new one. Trust in Jesus. But for those who have trusted in Jesus. For those who say, I have devoted myself to Jesus. He is my Lord. Consider your devotion. Consider your comfort. With maybe some of those acceptable sins. Because when you respond to Jesus, I mean genuinely respond to Jesus, when He says, follow me, and you go, I'm following you. There is no guarantee you will where it's going to lead, but there is a guarantee that you will experience judgment and blessing. What do I mean? Jesus is going to tell you some things you like and some things you don't. He's going to make you uncomfortable. Devotion to Jesus is going to take you away from your comfort with sin, even the acceptable ones. Devotion to Jesus is going to naturally reveal your selfishness. 
Devotion to Jesus is going to reveal your idols and you're not going to like that because they make you feel good. And devotion to Jesus is going to expose your fakey religiosity. And devotion to Jesus is going to cause you to be disliked and hated by others. Devotion to Jesus, quite frankly, is going to naturally bring judgment on those things that have become way too important to you because they're robbing Jesus of worship and glory. And if you're not experiencing that, if you're not hearing things that you don't like, if what I say sometimes like, I don't like that, right? You've got to ask yourself who your Savior really is because you have a Savior who's constantly telling you things that you want to hear and that you like. You may have the wrong one. Devotion to Jesus doesn't just bring judgment. Devotion to Jesus brings an overwhelming blessing that is immeasurable. Because Jesus, when you put your trust in Him, He forgives all of your sin. Past, present, future. Sins you don't even know that you have committed. You don't even remember. You don't know the depth. Sins that you are going to commit someday, He forgives and He frees you from its power. And Devotion and trust in Jesus removes your guilt and your shame forever. Your identity is not in what people think of you anymore. He establishes your identity as a perfect child of His forever and says, you're significant. He fills you with love. He fills you with joy. He gives you a hope beyond this world and in this world. And He gives you a purpose Meaning, until He returns, which is frankly to proclaim that Jesus is Savior and Lord. And as Lord, He is worthy of devotion, worthy of obedience, worthy of sacrifice, worthy of your life, and worthy even of your death. That's who Jesus is. I pray we become a people that are devoted to Jesus, where everything else pales in comparison, everything else is significant. As you come to the table this morning, as we come to take communion, this is what we're reminded of. Not only that Jesus judges our sin, because He does, and He forgives it. Not only that He crucifies you with Him on that cross and buries your sins forever, but He raises you with Him in His resurrection to new life, an empowered life, a life of devotion, where in fact obedience is joy. Because you no longer obey to be accepted. You obey because you already are. And it's your delight.